Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 6. Let's share in God's good word together. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. And they took offense at him. Jesus, God himself, loving others, welcoming others, teaching others, guiding others, and they did not want to hear it. Any youngest children in the room? Just the way it is. You go home for Thanksgiving, get ready. Nobody's listening to you. Right? It doesn't matter what you do, what you've done. You're, you're home. You're just home. Don't listen to Jesus. I know Jesus, I know his sisters, I know his brothers. They just, they're like, what's he talking about? This Jesus. It is an interesting thing when we begin to follow Jesus. It can be really quite daunting, particularly if your family are not believers. It can be very difficult, very jarring for the whole system as you begin to live a new life. And so today I want to talk to us about second chances. I want to share in very clear terms about what it is to follow Jesus and how you do it and that you can do it today. It it is really very much like the first followers of Jesus. It's trial and error and try again. And so uh, Dr. Grail started us off great last week. um, And we were were moving through Mark um, in this month leading into Advent, leading into December. And so um, last week we, we learned... Um, or remembered together, that Mark is the shortest and the first gospel written in roughly 70 AD, following the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it is in this really difficult time where Rome is the occupying government. There have been clashes with these uprisings uh, with Jewish people that were trying to get up and out from underneath the ruling power. And the Romans burn Jerusalem to the ground. The temple is burned to the ground. The very place that they thought they could worship God is gone. The places that they used to gather gone the things and the traditions that they knew gone and finally just a few years later the romans will utterly defeat that jewish uprising in 73 at a place called masada it has its whole own history to it i recommend it to you Um, it's a remarkable story in and of itself and is into this world of violence and betrayal and just a harsh military reality that mark writes these words The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I just just wonder how many people read that or heard that good news. I mean, there's not any good news around here at all. I mean, this is the worst of times. This is the darkest of times. And Mark says, no, no, no. This is the beginning of something new. That God is breaking into the world to make all things new. That the Messiah, the Christ, has come. And so the beginning of the good news is Jesus entering the picture, and the end is the actual establishment of heaven, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where what God wants done is done, where shalom happens, where nothing is missing, nothing is broken, and God rules, and peace reigns. 
and joy is everlasting. And so in the beginning, you have Jesus coming to the picture, and at the end, you have where everything is right, but then that's where you and I come in, in the middle, and there's suffering. There's suffering then, there's suffering 2,000 years between, and there's suffering now. You don't have to look very far from your own home to the things on the news to see that suffering all around us. Dr. Amy Jill Levine, um, who was Pastor Brandon's uh, professor at Vanderbilt uh, in biblical studies, she says, for ancient Israel, this idea of salvation, it did not mean an eternal blessed afterlife. It, it didn't mean that then, doesn't mean that now, actually. It meant salvation from this worldly dangers, things like slavery, illness, war, famine, or drought. Salvation was palpable, something we were to experience in this life and the next, because Jesus has come. And he says the, the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is there and Jesus is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Levine goes on, she says, the message of salvation, the good news of Jesus must be more than a post-mortem fate. This is where you say amen. amen. Right? It's more than that. Salvation also occurs in the here and now. Here and now. So that you and I, we work against famine. You and I, we work against drought. We work against illness. We, we do things to bring healing and wholeness and comfort to the world as a part of God's good plan because the good news has begun in Jesus and it continues in you, if you will have it be so. And so we are um, talking about a beginner's guide to following Jesus. Now, to be fair, uh, one of the books that we're using as we look at Mark is Dr. Levine's book, uh, A Beginner's Guide to the Gospel, uh, News Alert. It's not a beginner's guide. It's hard. Yeah. That, that book is deep. <laughs> I mean, I've struggled with some pieces. I'm like, I have not heard that before. And so if, if you're here and you're like, I've been reading along with you, and that is not a beginner's guide, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're, just, you're just right. I, I find it um, challenging and good, but um, not, not easy. But here's the thing that we need to remember. It's, it's always been this way, that it won't be easy to follow Jesus. And whoever tells you that it is is not telling you the truth. Now, Jesus' yoke, his way of life, is better than being without him. Yeah, that yoke is easier than non-discipleship for sure. But it's not easy. You see, most of the people in Jesus' hometown, they failed to honor him. They didn't just fail to honor him. They, they didn't even respect him. Like, who is this kid? We know him. I mean, his dad's a carpenter. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. And, and the thing is, as you begin to follow Jesus, don't expect a parade. So many, many times we, we have these wonderful baptism celebrations, and it is a celebration, the beginning of new life. But have you, have you all been to a birth? I mean, that's gross. I mean, there's a reason why for years people like me were not allowed in the room. Because it would like fall over. It, it's a traumatic thing if you've ever seen a live birth. In Mark 6, the gospel goes like this. It says, in the next breath, they, they were celebrating Jesus at first because he could do all this wonderful stuff. But in the very next breath, they were cutting him down. He's just a carpenter. Mary's boy. We've known him since he was a kid. We know his brothers, James, Justice, Jude, Simon, his sisters. Who does he think he is? They tripped over what little they knew about him and fell sprawling, and they never got any further. And Jesus told them, a prophet has little honor in his hometown among his relatives on the streets, he played in as a child. Jesus wasn't able to do much of anything there, actually. He laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's all. He couldn't get over their stubbornness. They just were not going to see the reality that was before him. 
And you know, I would love to say that that was their problem. But I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I see things I've never seen before. This is embarrassing to me, but I was in high school before I got, if it's quick, you can't drink it slow. That commercial? I know, this is very embarrassing that you know about your pastor now. If it's quick, you can't drink it slow. Anyway, it was a thing. It was like milk. Anyway, look it up. All right. So Jesus actually has some rules if you want to follow him. If you want to follow him. And the first is this. We take this very seriously around here. And that is that the first rule Jesus gives you is to travel with a what? With a buddy. With a buddy. We do this at camp. We do this at children's time. We do this here at the church. You need a buddy. You need a buddy. Jesus always sends them in two. And, and the American church gets this wrong a lot. Like, what is God calling you to do? The answer is nothing by yourself. It really is. It's nothing by yourself. You need someone to go with you. The scripture is very clear about this in verse 7. It says, he called the 12 and began to send them out. How? Two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Friends, if you're going to take on evil, you better have somebody beside you. Absolutely. So let, let's, let's just make sense of this. First of all, a companion makes you less vulnerable to assault. You'll notice that um, Megan said they did take a staff with them. They were allowed to protect themselves. Absolutely. But they, so they went in groups of two. And, and if you're going to be in ministry of any sort, you ought to have somebody ride along beside you. Uh, by the way, you should know that our expectation is that there is never anyone on this campus alone. Ever. So if you come here by yourself, get off campus. You're not supposed to be here by yourself. You're supposed to have somebody here with you. It, it's for your own safety, and, and, it's, and it's for the safety of the church, and so that things run right. We also have a lot of cameras, but that doesn't do us a lot of good on the front end, right? We might know what happened to you, but that's not going to be much comfort to your family, right? I mean, don't be alone in ministry. It's just not wise. The second thing is a companion can help with disappointments when things don't go as planned. Anybody been in ministry? They don't go as planned. You know, I've, I've had a couple people tell me, like, Pastor Mark, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just not into organized religion. I'm like, well, you'll fit in here good. We have no organization whatsoever. <laughs> Disorganized religion, come on. You got it. Right? <clears throat> so, at the very beginning of our church in 1999, uh, I was 31. Right? And um, Chantel's a year back of me, and uh, Noah was in her belly at the time, uh, and John Mark was two. And so this was our family in, in 99. This is uh, about April. We just bought the land or uh, got a, a 0% loan from the foundation. Uh, there's, there's Noah, front row. There he, oh, so cute. Um, and so here's the thing. I didn't do this alone. I had a companion. Chantel's been with me every step of the way. And I remember early on that um, we, th- this is still amazing to me, we were given $75,000 the first year. 35 of that was my salary. And we were supposed to figure out everything else on the rest of it. And we couldn't even buy sound equipment. Or, or, I mean, it was just ridiculous. We, we had no people, no land, no buildings, no help, no nothing. Just 75 grand. That was it. And they're like, good luck. So we, we, got a, we literally got a yellow phone book and started going through the white pages, seeing if there was any name we could recognize to call. And just kept going down, like, do we know anybody in Edmond that we can call? And we, we started calling people. And Paul Davis um, was a friend of mine from high school, and he said, yeah, you can come over. Our, our twins are about to have a two-year-old birthday party. You can come. 
His dad had twisted his arm and his mom because they were still friends with my parents. And, um, and then that was how the church started. But Chantel was there. And I remember the first, we were at, no, no church would let us in. No school would let us in. Columbine had happened. And so they were like, look, there's no way anybody's renting anything from us. And so we started at a Disciples of Christ church. And then through a lot of prayer and a lot of prayer and a lot more prayer, we actually did get into Edmund North. And we were committed to never bring another person from another United Methodist Church because we were trying to start a church planting movement where people actually were excited about new churches and not afraid of them. And so it was our commitment that we were not going to take anybody from another church. And so we started on Saturday night because we figured, you know, it's Saturday night. Church people go on Sunday. So we're looking for not church people. It just so happened that that year, Christmas fell on a Saturday. And so we were having our first Christmas Saturday service. And we had spent about $5,000 on a mailer and letting everybody know. And we had 16 people show up. Four of them were my family. <laughs> and 12 others. And I, I, I remember saying to Chantal, I said, I, it would have been better for me to tape $5,000 under people's chairs and just see who got it. Because, I mean, it, just didn't, it wasn't working. People weren't coming. They didn't, they didn't want to go to Emma North. And people thought we were weird. I was still in a robe. Um, it was the weirdest deal. And people were like, No. And, I mean, we, we felt like giving up. And, and then there was Chantel. She's just always around, like, no, you, you can do this. You can do that. We can do this. God's with you. I, we can see this. Hang in there. And so we, we did. And we would do things like this building, not this building, but the, other, the first building came up in, like, 06. And we did trunk or treat even then. Can you imagine that? And we had hundreds of people show up, and we just had the one building. Um, for those of you who know... Um, this young lady is now in a master's degree at Oklahoma State. <clears throat> uh, just wonderful people um, coming and, and being with us. And little by little, we began to grow. And then we were there, and then we were here. The next building, you're here. And the Lord's been faithful. But I would have never gotten here had I not had a companion. Many of you all know we have more than 30 water wells uh, throughout Guatemala. Uh, our first one was in El Salvador. Some of you all were on that first trip. Uh, this is me and Jaime Torres. Uh, Jaime, we would never go to Guatemala if it wasn't for Jaime. The reason it works is he's in country. He puts in nearly 50 wells a year. We just happen to be two of those each year. And, and the other thing is, I have almost nothing to do with that ministry whatsoever. The reason it works is because John heard of our church and Jaime are good friends. And, and they've got this thing down. In December, our plan is to go back again. And before you know it, we'll be at 40 wells. Saving tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives at this point. And we know where all the wells are. We go by and we see them. We can't make sure they, they keep running. But it's about the companionship. Do you see that? We would never go to Guatemala on our own. There's no way we could even know if people were safe. Or whether it was being done right. Or if the wells were going well. But we do because of Jaime. Companions are important. It's the way Jesus does it. And companionship, it eases the loneliness, and you can encourage, it creates accountability, and it can also serve as a legal witness if you need that. And so it's true, Jesus said, go in twos and take your staff, but he also said, but nothing more, right? No bread, no bag, no money, wear your sandals, you don't need, you know, two outer coats. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place, because it's not about you, it's about you being faithful to whatever the Lord provides, 
And if any place will not welcome you, don't worry about it, just move on. They refuse to hear you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed all that all should repent, turn their lives towards God. Now, this is instructive, friends. I know some of you, and I don't, I don't mean this to be a bummer at all, but one of the hardest things when we were starting the church is there's some people that I really thought were so cool. They were so wonderful. They were so awesome. And I would go and I was like, oh, I want you to be a part of the church. And they're like, I'm not interested. And I'm like, but I really want you to be a part of the church. And they're like, yeah, I'm really not interested. And I can remember just praying hard and working hard and you know, trying to do whatever I could to get these people to come be a part of our church. They weren't interested. You know who was interested? Granola. Fruits, nuts, and flakes. Yep. <laughs> people that couldn't fit in any other church. They've been to all the other churches. It didn't work. They're like, that guy seems weird. We'll go with him. And so here we are. Sorry, Kathy. I know. Sorry. So some of you are still in the room. Sorry, Brad. But I mean, we were a weird little bunch at the first. But we just kept going. We said, okay, Lord, what do you want to do with this? What do you want to do with this? And so we turned our lives towards God. And, and what that meant was when things got hard and we hurt each other's feelings, because you always do. You always do. We had to restore those relationships. Right? You have to restore the broken relationships. You have to change our way of thinking. We said, you know what? Saturday night's not working. We better go Sunday morning. Okay, so now we're Sunday morning. And, and, and it's always about restoring community, about coming back together, about taking care of one another, about blessing the world by being an enclave of heaven where people look at us and go, that's different. They take care of each other. They love one another. They bless one another. They honor one another with their words and with their lives and with their resources. Dr. Levine writes, she says, I can imagine young adults telling their parents with whom they worked, right? They I mean, this was a working family. I'm going with Peter and Andrew to go fish for people. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine parents having some choice words for Peter and Andrew. Like you're blowing up my family business. You see, when, when it comes to following Jesus, it's not a have to. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. See, followers of Jesus... They voluntarily make themselves vulnerable and dependent. And it's God who makes us effective. Amen? Amen. We, we just show up. We see what God will do. You know, the scripture says that they actually did. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick. And it worked. It worked. They had not done this before, but it worked. And so to follow Jesus is to find ourselves face to face with the needs of the world. Even with the little band that we had with 40 and 50 people, we had built six houses in Rio Bravo, Mexico in the first two years of our existence for people that were in need. We were face-to-face with the needs of the world. We went and we did things that we could do. We couldn't do it all, but we could do some things, and so we did those things that the Lord led us to, the evils of the world. My preaching professor, uh, Zan Holmes, he just has a way with words. I heard him preach a sermon on this text, and, and he was talking about how you have to go get in the middle. You have to go get in where the needs of the world are. And he says, friends, if we have not met the devil face to face, we may be walking in the same direction. Hello? If you've been living on Easy Street your whole life, you've got to wonder what direction you're walking. The Lord calls us to get in the middle of the pain of the world and to address it, to bring heaven to earth. Like the disciples, we half understand or misunderstand or refuse to understand what Jesus requires of us, particularly when it requires suffering. When it's time for your pledge card. 
right? Which is now. <laughs> I mean, when, when the Lord says, no, 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 I want you to eat with that person at work that you know has been dogging you behind your back. You are to bless them and to care for them and to show them grace as a witness to a love that's greater than their hate. Hard stuff. It's the hard stuff that changes the world. So the scripture goes on. It says the apostles gathered around Jesus and they told him all that they had done. They'd done amazing things. And what they taught, he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. Now, friends, this is super important, particularly in a growing situation like we have. Now, you have got one of the most amazing staffs I've ever, ever been the pleasure of being a part of. But you know, here's the thing. We'll do ministry and it'll be amazing, but that we have to rest. We have to rest. For many who were coming and going, they had no leisure even to eat. It's like Wednesday nights around here. You don't have time to eat because we got all the stuff going, right? And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Jesus, it's time to rest. Now, I want you to notice this rhythm of ministry. It's action. And then they debrief the action. How did it go? And then they rest. They rest. In verse 33, it goes on to say, Now, many saw them going, and they recognized them. And they hurried there on foot from all the towns that arrived ahead of them. And as Jesus goes ashore, he sees this great crowd because they were doing great things. And he had compassion for them. He did. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They, they were lost. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, people still crowding in on Jesus, trying to get healed or trying to get food. His disciples, they come to him and they say, this is a deserted place. And the hour is now, say it with me, very late. Send them away. So that they may go into surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Have you ever been in a, in a crowd or maybe in a ministry setting or in a work setting and things are going well, but you just get the sense that it's about not to? These people are getting hungry and it's getting late and you're worn out. Dr. Levine says, you know, the line between a miracle and martyrdom, discipleship and death is very thin. It's very thin. You know, you can be in a ministry setting and things that were going pretty well, it can turn on you in a dime if you don't meet expectations, even if they're unrealistic. It's just the way it is. Now, can you imagine? I mean, the disciples are like, hey, who's going to tell Jesus? We need to get rid of these people, right? I mean, they're like, we're done. You better go tell them. Like, staff is worn out. You better go, who's going to tell them? And so somebody gets this short straw and they're like, hey, Jesus, if you haven't noticed... It's late, and people are tired, and they're hungry. Could you just go tell them to get something to eat? And what does Jesus do? He blows their mind. He's like, what? Well, look, look, look what he says. <laughs> they're completely bewildered. Like, Jesus, we're worn out. They're hungry. It's about to go ugly. And, and Jesus goes, hey, why don't you give them something to eat? That's an idea. You give them something to eat. Who's going to give them something to eat? Is it Jesus? No. He said, Jesus, they're like, Jesus, you need to do something. He goes, church, you better do something. You give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy six months worth of bread and give it to them? Like, come on, Jesus. You're not even being reasonable. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves have you? I mean, just what do you have? That's what Jesus always asks, by the way. He's, he's not asking you to do something you don't have. He's like, what do you have? And they say, well, you know, we got a couple of loaves of bread and they had these little fish, five and two fish. Now, 
I don't know which scholar I want to believe, but some of them say they're like sardines. They're like little fish. It's not like they have big tuna tartare. I mean, like little, little fish. It's like, well, what do you got? That's what I got. So this is how it works with Jesus. Jesus involved the disciples every step, and he will involve you every step if you'll say yes. So look what he does. The first thing he does, he says, well, sit them down in groups. We've got these bread. We've got these little tiny fish. Sit them down. Let's see what they have. And then when you sit them down, feed them. Feed them. Now, when my dad used to preach this sermon, he always had a vivid imagination that, you know, and, and maybe you've been, you've been, this maybe happened to you. Uh, this used to happen to like church dinners and things. Somebody's like, oh, hey, we, you know, you need some fish. And people are like, no, no, I got my peanut butter and jelly. I just didn't want to share. Right? It was inside their tunic. People had food, but they're not bringing it out if everybody else is hungry. Right? And then Jesus said, okay, so you sat them down. You see if there's enough food. Of course, there's enough food. And what happens next? He goes, oh, and by the way, pick up all the leftovers, would you? And just, just report back. Just tell me how it went. You can almost hear Jesus like, watch this. Right? Right. Friends, what, what we need to understand is can Jesus, like, make bread, multiply? Sure he can. But that's not much of a miracle, really. When he can change a heart, change a people, that's lasting. It's not a trick, right? It's not a one-time deal. So he, Jesus orders them to get all the people to sit down in groups and green grass, sit down hundreds and fifties, takes five loaves, two fish, looks up to heaven, gets God involved, and, and he gives it to his disciples before the people. He divides the two fish among them all. He eat. They were all filled. He took up, how many baskets left, friends? Twelve. Those that had eaten the loaves numbered about 5,000 men and their wives and their children. Now, what's important that we understand about this is that we, I'm inviting you to see yourself as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, not just somebody in the crowd, right? Not just something, trying to get something from him. Because a follower of Jesus is one who seeks to actualize the will of God in this life, in concrete actions. That's why we exist, to make disciples for the very transformation of the world. That's what every United Methodist Church exists to do. And the way we do it is very simple and super difficult. And that is that the first thing we do, y'all, y'all should know this by now. What's the first thing we always do when it comes to Jesus? Pray. We listen. What do you want me to do, Jesus? And then once Jesus tells us, what do you have to do? We have to act. You got to go do it. And then after we act, Jesus invites us, if we're wise, to reflect. How did it go? Did you have leftovers? Well, we sure did. We had 12. And Jesus might ask you, well, what does that tell you about me? Are you going to live in scarcity? Are you going to trust me that everything I call you to do, every vision I give you, I give you provision plus some? That's always been the way it is around here. Whatever the Lord's asked us to do, we've done. And then some. And we don't always know how it's going to work out. We're like, Jesus, we just got a cup of tiny fish. He's like, it's okay. Sit him down anyway. You see, prayer is listening to God. Sometimes that's directly in silence. Sometimes that's through scripture, like Lectio Divina. Sometimes that's through others. Normally that's like moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, small group leaders. And through nature. I mean, I know there's a lot of men in our church. I mean, they, you want to talk about them getting right with God. It's in their deer stand. They really experience God powerfully in the sunrise in nature. That's a real thing. But once we understand what God's calling us to do, then we have to act. 
We just do. And action is doing what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. Not in our time and not in our power. It's in the, what? Spirit's time. Spirit's power. And it's in the Spirit way, which is gentle. And that sometimes includes waiting. But it's never always waiting. Sometimes we do actually have to act. And then we reflect on, on what are we learning? Jesus, okay, so, so we're going to do this. Now, how do we do it better this time? We want to do good, but we want to do good well. We want to do it better and better. We want to be better stewards. My hope and prayer is that every time you give a dollar here, that it goes further every year because we're a little better. We learn a little better about how to bless people with it, make good decisions. Now, to follow Jesus, then, is to be engaged with him in meeting the needs of the people of the world, both here locally and globally. And so the way we do this, um, Elaine Heath um, is a professor, and man, I wish I could write things the way she writes them, but this is worth saying with me. Say this with me. Show up, pay attention, cooperate with God, and release the outcome. You know, I find churches are are pretty good at showing up. Sometimes we even pay attention, and we'll cooperate with God, and then then go like we wanted to, we're mad. Jesus, like, are you kidding me? If you can trust me with the first ones, you can trust me with the last one, right? So say it again with me. Show up, pay attention, cooperate with God, and release the outcome. God can do whatever he wants to do with our church. It's his church. Right? It's not mine. It's not yours. But here's the thing. Jesus, after he has them do all this stuff, you know what he does? He gives them a test. He's like, did you get it, guys? Did you see what I was laying down? Did you get the lesson of the loaves? So immediately, Mark says, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat, go on ahead to the other side without him. See if he can do it on their own beside it. He dismissed the crowd. He's like, okay, go on. After saying farewell to them, he goes up to the mountain to pray. Oh, he's starting over. And listen, what what does the father have for him? So Jesus sends the disciples away to the other side while he stays back to pray for them and to watch them. To watch them. You do know that the actual character of a child is what they do when you're not in the room. Jesus is watching them. What will they do? What will you do? When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, Jesus comes toward them early in the morning, between 3 and 6 in the morning, walking on the sea. I love this line. He intended to pass them by. (laughs) It's like, dang, he still didn't learn this yet. Walking by. But love wouldn't let him. His love, his compassion for his friends wouldn't let him. So he stops. And again, Dr. Holmes, as only he can say, he says, Jesus has to do this because a faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. So again, have you been tested? You might have a faith that can be trusted. And guess what? The disciples fail. (laughs) They get an F on the test. And Jesus comes to them anyway. It's not about their goodness. It's about Jesus' character. About his, goodness, about his love for them, his compassion for them. But when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cry out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. That's what Jesus always says. That's what the angels always say. That's what God always says. Like, come on, people, you don't have to be afraid. Then he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. When's the last time you invited Jesus into your boat? He's ready, he's willing. 
You don't have to freak out all the time. Say, get in the boat. And they were utterly astounded. Because that's what happens when you get Jesus in your life. You're just astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. They still didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. They're still trying to do it in their own strength, rowing against the wind. Billy Graham, in his wisdom, wrote that the Christian life is never spoken of in the Bible as a bed of roses. It is uphill because society is coming one way and the Christian is going the opposite way. But Jesus said that in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your difficulties, Jesus will be there to give you grace and peace in the boat with you. And then in only the way Dr. Holmes can say it, he's like, friends, when it comes to lesson loaves, if you don't grow through what you're going through, hear me, if you don't grow through what you're going through, you will repeat the course. You will. If you're going through something hard and you don't talk to grandma about it, you don't talk to a therapist about it, you just get right back into another relationship just like the last one you left, you're going to repeat the course. You got to grow through what you're going through. That's true for all of us. And we have a choice. You don't have to. God doesn't make you. But wisdom would say, hey, let's, let's grow through what we're going through, church. Let's learn from these last few years. Let's grow. Let's learn the lesson of loaves. And Dr. Levine says, friends, 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 it's never too late. It's never too late. It's always the right time to repent, to turn your life towards what God has for you. We live as if what we do matters, and it does. It does. You matter. What we do in this church matters. When we reach out to the hurting, it matters. When we say all are welcome, it matters. When we help people after surgery, it matters. When we feed people who are hungry, it matters. When you bring people into your home, it matters. When you encourage somebody on a Sunday morning, it matters. And the good news is that Jesus keeps on coming back to us where we are. Not where we want to be, not where we used to be, but where we are in the boat. Whether we've learned the lesson or not. And he will never let us down. And he will never let us go. Because of his compassion for us. So I invite you to start now with these action steps. To, to learn what it is to follow Jesus. And simply ask him. To say this with me. What does Jesus want me to do? Say it out loud. What does Jesus want me to do? What does he want me to do? And, and for some of you, it may be as, as simple as feed the dog. They're hungry. And for others of you, it might be give your life to me today. You've waited long enough. It's time. It's time. And then whatever Jesus says to you, whatever that is, ask the question. Say it with me. What did I do in response to Jesus' call? However you responded. And be honest. Because for a lot of people in the room, it's going to be nothing. I know what Jesus wants me to do. I'm just not doing it. And then don't really be surprised about what's going on in your life. Because change requires obedience. It just does. And then the third thing is this. Once you've asked, you've responded, then, then say with me, what did I learn from the action to inform my next action as a follower of Jesus? Friends, we can get better and better at this thing of following Jesus. We can. Each and every day. And I invite you to do it. And it starts with prayer. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.